Good morning again. We are back in 1 Corinthians. We've taken a little break for Advent. And last week, John Sackett preached our New Year sermon. Uh, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 8. And just a reminder about Corinth. This is, this is a congregation uh, that probably gives Paul the most trouble of all of his congregations. So we titled the series, Church, A Mess Worth Making. Paul was willing to love them, shepherd them, engage their mess. And part of that mess is, their, their, and we'll talk more about this as we go, but they're longing to sort of be Christians yet be a part of the culture and trying to figure out how to walk that fine line. And we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with how, how much freedom do we have? How do we use our freedoms? And in chapter 8, and parts of uh, 10 this morning, let me make sure that's what was being covered. Yes, very good. Uh, we're going to see this weird thing that I just want to tell you on the upfront. It's food sacrifice to idols. Now, I've not met anyone in this congregation who's ever done that. So, so far we're good. But what we don't want to do is go, so this does not apply to me, because it actually applies a lot. See, for them, what we'll find out is what this culture, to be a part of it, you had to eat meat all the time that had originated from a sacrifice of some pagan god. And so there was this constant struggle for them. Should we eat it? Should we not eat it? So we'll dive into that, but I want to give you that heads up. But I also want you to recognize that Paul is not only answering their question, but he's really restructuring the question. He's trying to show them that when they're looking at their liberty, that is, their freedom, what they get to do, they shouldn't just ask, do I get to do this, yes or no, but rather... He, well, I'll just give you a hint. He just hints that there's a better way to figure out your Christian freedom. That's what we're going to look at. How do you determine right, whether you should do something or not do something, even when it's lawful? Okay, so 1 Corinthians 8. By the way, I, it starts in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. All three really flow one thought. We're going to look at 8 this week, parts of 10. Next week, we'll look at 9. That's a biographical sketch. But there's no way, even in two discussions, to even get close to answering these questions. So, come tonight with all your other questions, okay? Stump the chump. If I can't answer it, I'll point to one of the elders or a deacons or somebody else. Shane will be there. Just kidding, he won't be there. Okay, 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And then chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to save us, to call us in, to adopt us as your children, and to give us freedoms. Lord, help us to learn to use those freedoms for your glory and for the building up of your church. Amen. When I became a Christian, or or maybe I should say it this way, when I started walking with Christ, I was in high school, and immediately there were things I knew I needed to give up, you know, partying. Right? I used to go out with the wrong crowd, and we drank and went to the field parties. It was time to adjust that, right? And I began hanging out with Christian friends. And, and many of you have a testimony like that. Some of you don't. But many of you know people who, when they come to Christ, rightly make some adjustments, right? You know, I'm going to quit using this language. I'm going to quit. Maybe some of you know people who get rid of all their records. I think Doug did this. You know, this is all evil, and we throw out their records. I've been the recipient of those people. Oh, that's... I, I, seriously, James Taylor, I'll take that one. Thank you. I don't, I don't know where there was sin in that one. But nonetheless, people on this side of the spectrum often realize my former life is so bad. I need to make some changes. And it's true. Often what will happen what, over time, you've walked with Christ for a period of time, and you realize, you know what, rated R movies aren't that bad. You know, maybe I can say this word or that word or smoke on that or you know and pretty soon your liberties have taken you into a certain direction and again the truth is oftentimes and maybe even most of the time it's completely fine but here's the trick the trick is walking up to that person and saying what if you chose what if you just didn't do it for for once just let that thing go by let's skip that movie you'll see a bristle right and sometimes i do wonder if our liberties have taken over and they're not really stemming from the freedom we have in Christ. And that's really where I think Paul is going. So there is a traditional view of this passage, and many of you have been abused by it. I've been hit over the head with it once or twice. Oh, you're the weaker brother. 
Bless your heart. Have anyone ever heard that? Raise your hand. If someone's looked at you and said, oh, dear brother, you're the weaker one that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 8. Well, maybe. Quite frankly, I think Paul is saying they're weak, and we're going to unpack that, because the issue for them is not how close do I get to the edge. The question for Paul is this. Is your theology driving you to Jesus? See, the Corinthians were using great theology, and I mean that. Paul's theology to protect themselves, to do what they wanted, right? And, and Paul is saying, wait, if this theology is not making you more in love with Jesus and your neighbor, then it's not working, okay? So let's jump into that by looking, first of all, at the issue at hand. What is the underlying issue? Remember, Corinth is a relatively new city, about 100 years old, which is very, very young in ancient times. It's young now. And it was founded, remember, on this isthmus. I hate saying that word. It just sounds like I've got a problem, and I do. And it has, so it has two ports, and it's right where you have to go from east to west on the Mediterranean. So it boom, it's a boom town. And what that brought were a lot of people seeking not only fortune, but advancement socially. And part of the advancement socially is dining together, eating together. And every type of meal would have meat and much of that, time, those, that meat was sacrificed to idols. And so there's really three questions. There's, a lot of people have thought this just is meat market meat. Have you heard that? Sort of like, oh, this is just referring to you're in Corinth, you go to the market, it's a little bit cheaper to buy the meat sacrificed to an idol because they got rid of it once they were done with the ceremony. We'll buy that meat to you know, save money. Well, that was one issue, okay? So there's that. But clearly there's more. Food offered to idols means also the food actually sacrificed in their presence, right? That would be the extreme. In a temple, the middle ground would be when you've been invited to a home and the person dying has sacrificed the food recently. I don't know if it was that day or at another ceremony, but they're, they're letting you know this meat has been sacrificed for the purpose of this meal, okay? So sort of three different ways meat could be sacrificed but back in Acts 15, Paul has traveled to Jerusalem. He'd been planting churches as prior to Corinth. And he has to go back to Jerusalem with Barnabas and find out what Peter and the others would say to these Gentiles who have questions about food sacrifice to idols and unclean animals and all these Jewish laws, right? It's called the Jerusalem Council. And there Peter says, let's not put the yoke of burden on the Gentiles that we ourselves couldn't fulfill as Jews all these years, Right? So he's like, basically, you're free in Christ, except what? No sexual immorality, and don't eat food sacrificed to idols. So here we are in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul's planted this church. He lived there for 18 months. He's now left the church. They've exchanged letters. And in this letter, he's having to deal with it again. And it seems to me that probably he taught on not eating food sacrificed to idols in such a way but they probably followed for a while. But it didn't take long to realize we keep getting invited to meals. and <laughs> These are important meals for our career or for our advancement or just for our social status. And we're hearing that this stuff's been sacrificed to idols. What do we do? And this question is going on. But the Corinthians, if you've been tracking this letter, and I know it's been a while since we've been there, but hopefully you remember, they are, they are in love with knowledge. Right? That's their thing, right? wisdom and knowledge. 
And Paul's not near as excited about their level of knowledge. So let's look at how he dives into this issue. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now have you ever written in like an essay? You, you, you give that, you, you broach the subject and then what? You talk about it, right? That's about as much as I know about essay writing. He breaks the rule. Now concerning food offered to idols, colon, we know that all of us possess knowledge. You see those quotation marks? All, that's what my translation has. All of us possess knowledge. What's Paul doing? He's using their quotes. He's restating what they've already told him. He says, this knowledge puffs up. It puffs up. I love Christmas time. I love decorations. But one of my least favorite, and I know I'm going to offend some of you. I just know it. And it doesn't matter because you can keep doing it with glee. Are those blow-up toys in the yard. Those Santas and Rudolphs and all that. The reason I don't like them is this. What happens in the daytime? They're just laying ground. Oh, there's, is that Santa? As you drive by, laying limp in the yard. It's like, that's just ridiculous. They had like all that form last night. That's what knowledge, that's Paul's point. Like knowledge puffs up. It, it has this appearance of wisdom. It, it makes you look so smart. But it's just theology used to protect you. Okay, what is this knowledge? What is he saying? Let's, pick, let's keep going. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that, and he, he's sort of joining with them. We, you and I, Corinthians, know that, quote, an idol has no real existence. And, quote, there is no God but one. True statements, right? Paul elaborates on it just a little bit. Look at verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Paul is sort of doing this amazing thing where he's engaging them in their argumentation, and yet he's reminding them of the depth of theology. In verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. What knowledge is he referring to? You mean that there are Christians who don't know that Jesus is their Lord? You mean that there are Christians who don't know that there's one God? No. He's saying there are Christians who don't have the knowledge that an idol has no real existence. In other words, because of their former associations, they come into the church, and for them, even though they know the, the creed and they believe in one God, their conscience is still bothered by the fact that this food has been sacrificed to an idol, and it bothers them. And obviously for some of the Corinthians, those were called weak people. And for the Corinthians that are writing the letter and engaging this discussion with Paul, for them, they're using their theology that, they keep quote, that Paul keeps quoting to say, see, we can do whatever we want. We can go in whatever direction we want to go, right? Does that, do you see that? Is it wrong? I mean, let, let's look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? So right there, Paul seems to embrace the fact that there will be some of you, possibly, who go into a temple and there eat the idol food. Right? Well, we didn't read it, but if you turn to chapter 10, verse 19, he says, What do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice 
they offer to demons and not to God. Paul is actually letting them understand it's wrong, as we learned in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, to go into a temple and sacrifice to a pagan god just because you have the knowledge that there are no other idols, there are no other gods. Because there is a spiritual realm, and there is evil in that. Right? But more importantly, Paul is saying, it's, this is what hits us, I think, right in the face. It is possible for us to take really good theology, really good truth, and wander right into dangerous areas of our lives and allow sin to reign because of our theology. I, um, years ago, when I was walking with Christ and I got invited to be a youth leader, I was overwhelmed by my lack of discipline and the weight of the call. And it was really, for me, the, the re, or the, for the first time, understanding justification by faith. It just hit me like a ton of bricks that God loves me. Not because of anything I do, right? And I've, I've mentioned to you before, sonship. Some of you have even gone through the discipleship program. Open my eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And there are these little pithy phrases that come out of sonship that you've probably heard. Cheer up. You're worse than you think, right? You know? Or uh, little sin, little savior. Big sin, big savior. Okay? These are true statements that mean so much to me. But I've often heard other people, and at times probably myself, use them out of context to excuse bad behavior. I've heard a story of a, of a person who's really knowledgeable in theology saying things like, this, okay, this person got into the habit of not mowing their yard. Even when neighbors would be like, it's getting on the wife, would be like, you've got to cut the yard. And in conversations with friends, this person would say, I'm not judged by you. I'm judged by God, by Christ alone. And it sounds, how do you argue that? Say no more, you know? So his neighbor came and cut the yard or something, you know? Are you doing that with your theology? Are we allowing our view of the gospel to sort of let us essentially blend right into society like a chameleon? That's what's going on in Corinth. See, they don't, and I really believe this, I don't think the Corinthians wanted to go eat, uh, eat food sacrificed to idols. No one wants that, right? That just sounds yummy. If I could have a steak over here or one that was sacrificed to an idol and I'm a Christian, they're going to go with the one not sacrificed to the idol. But socially, it was necessary. And that's really the key here. What, what things socially are we afraid of letting go of because we'll be scoffed at by our culture? That's the real issue here. And so what is Paul's answer? Paul's answer we see right away in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, right? He just jumps right in. He says, Now concerning food offers to idol, food offered to idol, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up like the blow-up Santa Claus. But love builds up. And he's paving the way for 1 Corinthians 13, right? The infamous uh, chapter on love that I look forward to getting to and hopefully being transformed by myself, right? God says that love is what builds up. That is, Christ working in you, you being transformed, you being found by God, you being filled with His Spirit, love leads to you loving others, right? Look at verse, uh, right there in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, 
He is known by God. Love. When I first started going through sonship, I didn't even plan on bringing it up this many times, but I mentioned this to Doug this week. I'll bring it up here again. I remember in the first or second lesson kind of going, they keep talking about loving my neighbor. Like, I just want to know how to read my Bible more. And, you know, I want to be more disciplined. I had my goals, my spiritual journey I was on, and I kept hearing about loving people and getting along with others better. Well, it's not just sonship. It's the Bible, right? The first law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in this passage, Paul's argument to how you determine whether you have a liberty or not is what? Does it build up? Look at chapter 10, verse 23 again. All things are lawful. Quotations, by the way. But not all things are helpful. He had said that in chapter 6, too. In chapter 6, right about to launch into sexual immorality and the fact that they're going into prostitutes, he's like, okay, all things are lawful. Your use of theology. Paul adds the addendum. But not all things are helpful. He repeats it. All things are lawful. And then in 6 he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Here in 10, chapter 10, 23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Implying what? That when I think about whether or not I should do something, I should have in my mind, not only does it bring glory to God, but does it build up my neighbor? That's a pretty, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty robust thought, right? It's like, well, I don't know what my neighbor likes. How do I know what my neighbor likes? But here's a diagnostic. How do you even feel about your neighbor? Right? That's really the question. Do you even love those around you? Like When you really think about who you are, are you filled with love toward fellow people? Have you ever watched Survivor? It's like got 42 seasons, so I think I watched the first three and then just, that was enough. But I remember they would have the, uh, the circle and the fire and you had to vote someone off and you secretly walk over to the camera and you, know, you write down and you hold up the card. Oh, I thought they were friends. And it's like, nope, they're gone. <laughs> well, let's pretend we had to play that game here. Who would you vote off the island? And I'm really being serious. Just in this group right here. No one's going to have to tell me the name. But in your mind, who are you writing down? I'm certain, just by... The, the sheer fact of reality, I'm probably on some of your all's cards, and I, and I can accept that. But who would it be, and why? And, and I, I mean that. We have people, we just, I don't like that person. They rub me the wrong way. I'm sick of their blah, blah, blah. Who would you write, in this room, I mean that. Right now, think through it. Here's the problem. If you have a name in mind, and you have emotions attached to that name, and there could be many names, you're like, how do I choose? Your current state of spirituality is that. That's, your, that's not your weakest link. That is who you are right now. That's your belief. That is your level of love. For Paul, you can't say, I love and I feel God and I'm in Jesus and all this, and I don't care about this person or this group or that brother. It's impossible. And all of chapter 9 is Paul explaining it based on his own life. I didn't read 11.1 is the last verse of this entire discussion. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is saying, you can't say you love someone, or excuse me, you can't say you hate someone, or dislike someone, or just ignore someone 
especially in this room, they're your brother or sister, but even unbelievers as well, right? If you're in Christ. Now, am I saying you're not a Christian? No. I'm saying your spirituality has been stunted. I'm saying that probably in your sanctification, you're after the wrong thing. You're after the emotion of a good worship service. Maybe something the pastor might say that will help a little bit this week with that one issue, but you're not after Jesus if you are allowing yourself to feel that way. Um, in the very front of the past, in the very front of the bulletin, there's a Richard Lovelace quote. One cannot help but wonder what the result would be if lay people, no offense but you, could be spiritually released from their servitude in the American success system and reoriented to the channel, sorry, and reoriented to channel their major energies toward building the kingdom of God. How is that done? Love is unleashed. Spirit is unleashed, right? Look at, um, look at 8.12. Paul says this. Thus, or in 11, and if you, so he's been saying, if you eat in the idol's temple, everyone's still trying to find the quote. Sorry, it's on the front of your bulletin. We encourage you to take those home anyway. Um, Richard Lovelace, a great writer, read him. But in 8, 10 through 12, Paul says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to an idol? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, right? For Paul, the whole argument hinges not on is it lawful or is it not lawful, but are you loving your neighbor? Okay? Should we just close there? We have a lot to cover next week. And Love your neighbor. Everyone's like, no. No, because we're all guilty, by the way. right? Every one of us has a name on that card. So for some of you, it might be your name. By the way, that's not okay either. You're not allowed to hate yourself if Jesus has died for you. So where's the hope? Where's the, we've looked at the problem, right? This problem that, that these guys, the, this church is so trying to build social status that they're ignoring potentially weak brothers or sisters. And more importantly, they're just bending the rules with their theology, right? And Paul's corrective is not, you're breaking the law, but rather, where's love? Where's Christ in this? Where's love for your neighbor? And if you're like me, I want to know, well, Paul, how? How do I change? We all need to change. If I ever preach a sermon and you think, that one didn't hit me, I didn't do my job. So I'm sorry for those of you that get sick and tired of being like dragged through the mud every week, because we are sinners. And we need to know, we need to have the gospel applied to us all this week. And I think the answer is all through this passage. I've encouraged you when you read the Bible, read the passage like several times because your first blush, your first glance will always feel the weight, the finger pointing at you. But if you read it a few times, you'll start to see Jesus and, his, and hope, okay? We've already talked about um, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God, okay? But look at verse 6. We've already talked about this as well. I love it because... Paul, Paul's restating their theology, but it's very empty. It's very not powerful. You know, we serve one God. That's true. I like how Paul says it better in verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father. 
whom, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. He kind of repeats himself, doesn't he? And one Lord, Jesus. Now when you read your Bible and you see parallelisms, look for the part that's different. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Justification. Jesus. You hear it? Justification. Christ has died for you. He has covered you with his blood. Your new life is now hidden in Christ. And in verse, in verse 12, excuse me, verse 11, and so by your knowledge the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Brothers and sisters, for us to hear those verses, read them and glaze right over them, it's a problem. For us to look at that and go, that's a stretch. That's a problem, isn't it? Paul is saturating everything he talks about with adoption, with justification. Do you see it? Do you see the fact that you are a new creation? That His Holy Spirit dwells in you? That you are no longer a Corinthian? You are a Christian. And if you have to forego a freedom that is actually your freedom for the sake of Christ and for the sake of a brother, if you grasp your adoption, you will do so willfully. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to how J.I. Packer, and this is right out of our uh, new members class notes. So we teach this right up front. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Not in, the, in the actual passage, he says justification is important, but it's adoption. Both are critical. He says, justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance of the future is the primary and fundamental blessing. That's not a question, but adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Have you ever spent the night at someone's house and you woke up and you're like, do I go out? You know what I mean? I think I smell food, but is that for me? I'll just kind of wait. And... Do you ever do that? I do that. But have you ever been to someone's home and it's like, oh, that's for me. And you walk out and you go through the pantry. That's adoption. That is your reality. You are adopted. This is your house. God loves you. The enemy will come and try to convince you otherwise. The enemy is everywhere present. And your own flesh will try to convince you you're not part of this team. And one of the ways the devil deceives us is when we go to a freedom and someone, what if you didn't do that thing right now? And you're like, then, not, then maybe, and you start to question like salvation itself. You're free. You're free to eat or free not to eat. I don't know. I wanted to bring this up. It's kind of tricky. But I love, I love verse 8. 
food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. I mean, it's like he turned it around. Did you hear that? You think he would say, but if we do not, if we, um, sorry, we are no better off if we eat, right? And you're no worse off if you do, or whatever. He reverses it. The point he's making is very similar to circumcision versus uncircumcision in Galatians. Neither the food or going in will help you, or not eating will hurt you, unless your idol, your goal, is that social status, is that feeling of nothing hindering you. It's that feeling of personal autonomy. Then it's going to stink. But if God is your goal, if adoption is what drives you, if it's Jesus dwelling in you, then you can eat, you can eat. It doesn't really matter. Right? You can go to the movie, not go to the movie. Listen to the song, not listen to the song. Whatever it is. Now, a lot of you probably wanted details. Right? Like, Okay, what is this today? Doug and I kind of made a list and talked about it this week. And um, I don't have details. Tonight we'll give you the details. Not really. I don't, I don't want to get into, like, what exactly is the meat today. Here's what I want to say. I want to say this. Are you in love with the unbeliever? Do you want to share the gospel? Sometimes I read that or I hear that, and my heart immediately goes, oh. You know? And I, that breaks my heart. I want to be like Paul, don't you? Paul, in chapter 9, we'll see next week, he's one to give up anything to win the lost. Doug used to teach in Guthrie, and he used to assign reading. I remember being assigned books. You remember this? What do you do the moment you're assigned a reading? Whether you're a, ch- a young child and your parents say you have to read this, or you're in high school, it's time to read this, whatever. What do you do? You have two options. Some of you... Not doing that. That's me. I can't. Some of you, and I know several of you out there, perfect, an opportunity to shine. I'll read and I'll memorize and I'll just knock the teacher's socks off. Apparently Doug had zero of those students. But neither one are motivated by a real desire to study or read. I remember being at Target. I was in my 20s. I went, like, oh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I bought it. I, I devoured it. And then I went back and I bought... Um, oh, I just went, Catcher in the Rye. And I started buying these books that I remember being assigned, but I hated them. How many of you have done that? It was a show of hands. I know you have. I've talked to you. It's like, you know, you, you, if I'm told to do it, I don't want to do it. Well, what, what's the point? When we grasp our adoption, and we know that we are loved by God, it'll be obvious because we'll want to tell people who aren't experiencing it. When we're in the presence of somebody else who's struggling and yet our life is filled with joy and peace and the love of God, we're going to tell them about it. And if we don't, it's because we're going to restrain ourselves just enough to not annoy them because we've told them about it 42 times already. And so we'll just pray for them in this time. Do you understand? It's not a prescriptive thing. It's a response to Christ changing your life. Has that happened? Are you in Christ? What do you do? If you are sitting here going, that sounds like where I should be. That's great. That's the Spirit working. If you're sitting here going, I'm ready for this thing to end. Red alert. I mean, really, the, the noise and the uh, should be going off of your heart. You need Jesus. Now, going back to the former person who's going, that sounds great. I need that. How do we get it? Well, we are here. We're worshiping. We're going to take communion. We pray. Privately, you confess, Lord, Lord, 
I believe I should love my neighbor. I believe I should forego my rights and all the things I want in my world to begin to care for people. How can we even become volunteers for Brian's ministry? How many of you thought, I don't have a moment to spare. I'm so busy fitting into society that I don't have five minutes in my week. That's what I'm, I'm sorry. I think the same. I'm, I gotta, if I can't figure out how to love my neighbor, I've got a real problem. My heart is going the wrong direction. But Christ has come. He's adopted you, and there's hope. Paul wrote this letter. This wasn't a you're fired letter. This wasn't here's what you did wrong, you're done, the church is dissolved. This letter is there's hope in Jesus. Will you come, when we come to the table, to Jesus, to repent, to lay down the weapons of resistance, to grasp that you are free, and that freedom should drive us to actually love those in our midst, those around us that need the gospel. Father, forgive me and forgive us for thinking this passage is an argument for us getting to do what we want. Rather, help us to know that it is a passage that reminds us you are a God, Jesus, who left the comforts of heaven to go to a place you did not necessarily want to come, a fallen world, but you came because you wanted to reach your people. And not only that, Lord, you died on a cross. Something that none of us would ever, ever dream of doing. And yet you did it for sinful people. And Lord, you've offered your body and your blood to wash us, to cleanse us, to adopt us. We are now in the home. We are now in. Forgive us for living like orphans. Grabbing at everything we can to prove ourselves. Spirit, will you come this morning freshly to teach us adoption, what it means to be your child, what it means to use the great theology you've given us, but not to protect ourselves, but to glorify you in everything we do. Amen.